Hello everyone, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm welcoming you right now to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'd like to apologize for last week, our recording equipment didn't work so well, and in case you're noticing, there's no intro, that's because we don't really have a studio right now. We are looking for a financial support or a donor of some sort who will come and say, hey, I want to want to have you specifically do the show from the studio if you're interested in that. Please let me know. You can contact me through Facebook at Nick Peters, or you can email me at Nick at gmail.com. But for now, let's try and get into the show here, bringing you the best in the project's information. <clears throat> We've got an interesting topic here today. We're going to be talking about religious experiences. And my guest for this is Joseph Hyman. Mr. Hyman did his undergraduate work in sociology and debate at the University of Texas at Arlington. He earned a master's degree in theological studies, where he focused on history of doctrine at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University. He was a PhD candidate in the history of ideas, intellectual history, and studied at a doctoral level for several years at University of Texas at Dallas. He began work focusing upon Derrida and the postmodern understanding of itself. He then switched and spent five years studying history and philosophy of science, focusing upon Newton, Boyle, and the Latitudinarians. In the process of completing his dissertation, he was forced to terminate his studies of a dissertation due to family tragedies. Mr. Hinman published a peer-reviewed academic journal, Negations, an interdisciplinary journal of social criticism. He now works as an independent scholar. And today, we are going to be talking about a new book he's got come out through Grand Viaduct called The Trace of God. Uh, Joseph, I understand you said uh, it's okay for me to call you Joe. Uh, welcome sure. to the Deeper Waters podcast. Sure, Joe's fine. Well, that was your academic introduction there, but a lot of my audience might not be familiar with you. So can you tell us briefly the Joe Hyman story? <laughs> Well, um, I was born uh, in Dallas, Texas, in 1956. There were two of me. Uh, that is, I had a twin brother, and my twin brother died uh, this January. Oh. Um, he was uh, he was a great guy. He wanted to be a writer, but uh, I grew up in Dallas. Um, I was I was an atheist in college, and uh, feisty, Christian, hating, proud to be an atheist, stuck on myself, thought I was a great intellectual kind of atheist, and uh, Marxist, of course. But, of course, I wasn't really a Marxist. I was just a spoiled brat and went around saying he was a Marxist because he didn't know what it meant to be a Marxist. So, um, along about 79, I met this woman who was my sister's friend, and she was what one might call in certain circles a spirit-filled Christian. And she was also very black, so she just sort of knocked the food out of my little fortress of facts. And uh, so that's when I started paying attention. And I had a, a, a religious experience later that year. And that's how I became a Christian. But uh, when I say became a Christian, I mean um, I got... I had an experience. I felt the presence of God. I felt the love of God pouring over me. I said a bunch of emotional things about, you know, cliches that I had heard one say, one is supposed to say, but I meant them. The 
because that was my understanding of how you get saved, is that you tell God, you know, hey, I want to change. I want to be, I want to know you now, you know? Mm-hmm. So I started on a life of knowing God, and I began to read haphazardly about mystical experience. Um, mostly, most of that was uh, books suggested by that lady that I mentioned, but she didn't have a overarching framework for it. She just had a I love Jesus kind of framework, you know. So mm-hmm. um, I never really got into the scientific approach to understanding mystical experience until many years later, in like the early part of this century, when I was uh, arguing with atheists on the internet, and I was sort of building my uh, my fortress of facts for Christianity, and I began to, to find these studies that said things like uh, religious experience is not based upon mental illness, it's not emotional instability, it's good for you, it, uh, people who have these kind of experiences are less likely to get depressed, they're less likely to have mental illness, they're less likely to be divorced, and all this kind of thing. So uh, that's when I started developing a, a, what you might call an academic framework for how to situate that kind of experience in relation to a body of empirical data. And I discovered that there's this huge body of empirical research that's been done in the psychology of religion, which proves these kind of things, that religious experience is a positive, life-transforming uh, thing, and most people don't know about it. It's not very well known, even to Christian apologists, mm-hmm. because it's never really gotten out of the psychology of religion corner, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, that could, in fact, be the cause of a lot of skepticism today, because in, in my view, I've said, I'm still not totally sold, but you've made mm-hmm. the most convincing case I've seen, and I think it's worth looking into, because... Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. There's just one thing I want to add about my personal personal story. Um, mm-hmm. Clarify my, you know, this ambiguous phrase family tragedies, the mm-hmm. reason I didn't finish my doctorate was because um, my father had a major heart attack, and my mother, mm-hmm. shortly after that, started exhibiting symptoms of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And so my brother and I were determined to care for them ourselves, because Texas nursing homes were uh, in the news a lot for their abuses mm-hmm. at that time. So. We thought it would be horrendous to put them in a nursing home, and we wanted yeah. to to take care of them. Now, my brother uh, was also mentally ill, so he was invaluable in taking care of my parents, but I had been taking care of him for years. Mm-hmm. So with all of that going on, my academic production slowed way down, and then the, yeah. the, uh, the administration said, hey, you're not making satisfactory progress on your dissertation. So they sort of asked me to not... Continue. Mm. That's too but bad. But I was pretty burned out on it anyway. I was. I didn't. I didn't want to face the fact that I was really ready to give up on it anyway. Not. Mm-hmm. Not that I couldn't do the work. I had a 4.0 for several years, but just mm-hmm. uh, just tired of going through the grind, you know. Yeah. Well, to get back to the book, oh, I mean, 
And what you're talking about, I think many of us in the projects community, we can be very skeptical when we start hearing about experience, because mm -hmm. that seems so subjective, and I can think immediately of Mormons knocking on my door, for instance, and saying, oh, we have a burning in the bosom right. that tells us that Joseph Smith is a true prophet, and and, and think about all the people I hear on TBN who talk about all their strange experiences and all the bizarre things God tells them and such, which I'm um, left thinking, I don't know which God you're talking to, but it's not the one I know. That's the kind of, that, that is the kind of rap that religious experience has today, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people are really afraid of their own emotions. Yeah. They think they're going to lose control, they're not going to be able to, to hang on, and so they, they have so much practice of bottling up and hiding their emotions and not expressing them that they don't have a concept of healthy expression of emotion. Mm -hmm. And because they don't have a healthy expression, they don't understand that you can control your emotions and you don't have to lose control, especially if that emotion is being, if, if there's a real God, and God is really there and he's really instigating your emotions, He's not going to let you just go crazy and start doing things, you know. Mm -hmm. But as far as the the uh, burning in the breast and the Mormon thing, oh, I mean, this statement, it's it's all so subjective. Yeah, the content of the experience is subjective, but mm -hmm. the fact that you had it and what it does in your life mm -hmm. can be studied scientifically, and that's what my... That's what my whole book is about, is yeah. that there are people who've figured out a way to do that, and the book is, is showing you the studies that have been done and how they prove the result of having had these experiences. Now, the burning in the breast thing um, is not really mystical experience. That's not really mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, and the reason is because the idea of mystical experience uh, and, and these studies, the way they approach it, is based upon the theory of an English philosopher called W.T. Stace. Okay. And Stace theorized that mystical experience is um, beyond word, thought, or image. So mm -hmm. it's not something that's communicated to us in language. It's, it might accompany a physical sensation, but it's not made up of physical sensations, and mm -hmm. it's a form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, to say I have, we have, there's this physical manifestation that uh, indicates mm -hmm. this thing that's going on, that is not necessarily mystical experience. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be, it could be valid, you know, there could be a mystical experience where you do have a burning in your breath, but mm -hmm. Uh, that in and of itself is not uh, not a valid sign, and so for them to make that the sign just proves that they're not really, uh, well, which we know anyway, they're not studying it scientifically, we know they're not doing that, so, or at least they weren't back in uh, the days of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Mm -hmm. Well, what modern Mormons have done with that, I don't know. I haven't found any uh, body of work on Mormon psychologists. Mm -hmm. But in any case, um, you can't just say, I mean, the argument that, well, we better watch out for this because there's this group over here that has this, and that sounds similar. I mean, yeah. that is uh, argument from analogy, mm -hmm. first of all, and it's also guilt by association. So 
you know, I don't think that's a very good argument. I've also been thinking sometime of Dean Michael Sabama on our show, who talks about near-death experiences, and I'm thinking this could also be the same kind of thing, because for many of us who study near-death experiences, what we're really interested in is the thing someone identifies and outside of a body, but there is also, I understand, a growing body of uh, literature on near-death experiences and how people's lives are changed after they have one. Would you include that in religious experience? Well, yeah, uh, as the general umbrella, but uh, the, it's not specifically a mystical experience because mm -hmm. it does involve mental imagery and often words. Mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of these near-death experiences, they go to some place and some glowing body guy mm -hmm. tells them, you know, you've got to go back, you have more work to do, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Those, those are words. Those are images and words. So that's not mystical experience. But yes, the, the people who write about this field include all of this in a, in a big umbrella referred to as, you know, generally as religious experience. Or they, they have another term for it, but I forget what that is right now. Now, on the other extreme, I'm sure there are some atheists out there who are saying, Oh, yeah, talk about religious experiences. Okay, let's talk about Andrea Yates, who uh, thought God was telling her to drown her children in the bathtub. That's a religious experience, isn't it? No. Why, why would it be? Here's the point. Just because it's got God in it doesn't make it the, the kind of experience, you know, a life-transforming experience that I'm talking about. Okay. And you'll notice that telling someone to do something to their children involves words. Mm. So it's not a mystical experience because it's communicated in words. Okay. Now, um, this book that you get is a rational warrant or belief, the trace of God. Now that's so the trace of God. The rational warrant for belief is the subtitle. Yeah. Now, the trace of God—that's an unusual name for a book to some people. Why do you call it the trace of God? Well, the term trace comes from Derrida, who's mm -hmm. the big postmodern uh, author of the, the what is called deconstruction. And uh, Derrida uses that word to mean it's it comes from the French and it has a it has a connotation of following tracks in the snow. And so what I'm saying is uh, religious experience is uh, equivalent to God's footprint in the snow, except in, it's not in the snow, it's in, it's in us, it's in our hearts. But, mm -hmm. you know, this is the, this is the, what, what uh, Schleiermacher and people who write about Schleiermacher have termed the co-determinant, mm -hmm. or the, the god Carlet, what, what Tillich referred to as the Carlet. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, God himself is not, or in, in Perk, uh, Perkins would, the Perkins guys would give me a shock right now for saying that because we were trained never to speak of God in masculine pronoun, but God, God's self would uh, say, you know, would not be something that you can pin down and trace and follow, but the effects of God uh, could be. So the, the, these kinds of experiences are the effect of God on the human life. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you stress repeatedly in the book is you're not, not trying to prove God exists by this. But if that's the case, and someone can say, well, if you're not trying to prove God exists, what are you trying to do with religious experience? What difference does it make for any of the theistic arguments? 
Well, put it this way. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no proof that there's a multiverse. There's no proof that there are other universes out there that are parallel to ours. Mm -hmm. But when atheists need to argue there's a multiverse, like, for example, to out-argue the fine-tuning argument, they will not hesitate to evoke that theory and to act as though it's a proven fact. It's not a proven fact. It's mm -hmm. just a theory. Well, they think it's important to, uh, to use the mathematical models and the other theoretical uh, backing for the idea to try to make it seem as uh, real as possible, even though there's no proof that it's real. Well, this is just the same kind of thing. Why should we have to prove the existence of God when the point of believing in God is justified rationally? Mm -hmm. If there's a good reason to think there's really a God, mm -hmm. why does it have to be absolute proof? I mean, after all, we're talking about not a man up in the sky. We're not talking about a thing in creation, like, you know, what is creation? It's made up of club caps and spark plugs and toothbrushes. And, oh, and there's a God in there, too. Mm -hmm. You know, God is the foundation of all that is. God is the ground of being, the basis of all that is. So mm -hmm. you're not going to prove that. That's not something you can haul out and put under a microscope and look at. So obviously, uh, we have to go do the next best thing. And the next best thing is to show things that point to reasons for accepting the theory that God exists. And that mm -hmm. theory culminates in actually experiencing God. And those of us who have a relationship with God know that's a reality. But we can't communicate what we know to other people in the way that we have experienced it. I can't give you my experiences with God. Right. But I can show you the effect they've had on my life. Mm -hmm. and, and then perhaps you will be led to seek. That's the, that's the only point we can hope for as an apologist or as a Christian or anything, is that the other guy will say, gee, I'd like that too, and maybe he'll pray and, and God will come into his life. That's, what, that's the best you can get. Yeah, you start out also talking about the way that science is done and the paradigm shifts and things of that sort. Could you explain how this fits in with science? Well, that's in uh, the, the, begin, the opening chapter where I talk about, I answer the question you just asked. Why do we, uh, well, we have, let me back up. The real question it's answering is why do we make arguments for God why aren't there scientific facts that we can just whip out and say, see, God exists, fact one, fact two, fact three. Well, because of what I just said, God is too big to be reduced to <clears throat> empirical data. So we have to find other empirical data, like the co-determinants that point to God's reality, rather than a direct sighting uh, of God, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so that, that chapter is explaining this. Explaining why we need arguments and not, uh, we can't just build this fortress of facts like atheists try to do. The atheist arguments primarily consist of uh, saying, well, we have all the facts because we have science, mm -hmm. as though they own science. You know, science is not owned by atheists, but right. they seem to think it is. And uh, we have all the facts, and they don't have any facts. 
Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's because you, when you make facts the point, then, of course, empirical things are going to dominate, and God is not given in empirical data. So you're not going to, you know, I mean, it creates the illusion that there's no God, but it doesn't rule God out logically. Mm-hmm. That's what that chapter is about. And I bring Thomas Kuhn and his theory of paradigm shift mm-hmm. into it in arguing that science is not uh, a, a, an absolute truth-finding device. It's, it's a human endeavor. It's not cumulative. It's not, uh, you know, one-to-one stair-step of progress. It's paradigm shifts, and what looks like a proven fact right now in science, 50 years from now, will be considered an anomaly because it will be uh, ruled out by a new paradigm. Mm-hmm. And that's the way science works. And so this whole idea of, you know, I have my fortress of facts, and that, that means I don't have to believe in God. Well, your fortress of facts is going to be antiquated pretty soon because there are going to be more paradigm shifts. It's going to go away. I can't help so that's, that's what that first chapter is about. I can't help but think of G.K. Chesterton's phrase now where he says, He who marries the spirit of an age is destined to be a widow. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like Chesterton. Yeah. Uh, you also take a few shots in there at the uh, term, and this is when we should discuss, and so we hear it so much, that extraordinary claims require oh, extraordinary yeah. evidence. Uh, yeah, the... Uh... Extraordinary proof requires extraordinary, I mean, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, and get it right. Um, yeah, that, I, I've always felt that, that, that that's a, uh, a ridiculous standard, because, first of all, because atheists can never tell me what extraordinary means. Mm-hmm. They will, you know, they'll, they'll say, they will imply that, Belief in God is an extraordinary claim because they don't believe in God. But mm. when 90% of the world does, it's not really extraordinary. Right. So, and then, you know, they want to they connect it to Bayes' theorem, and it's really not Bayes' theorem either. Mm. It actually, I think it derives from Hume, but in any case. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I talk about that. I talk, I have some... I think I have some pretty damaging stuff against it in that same chapter. Well, tell us some of that damaging stuff that you've got. <laughs> well, let's see. There's the um, Truthy article where he he shows examples of uh, scientists and, and atheists demanding certain levels of proof for various hypotheses, and then when those levels of proof are met, this was in relation to publishing in journals, when the author meets those, they turn around and say, well, that's not really good enough. We need more. So they're, they're, they're always raising the bar. So if you, and, and I've noticed atheists doing this on message boards, too. If you say, mm-hmm. um, you know, here's, here's, here's what I think is extraordinary evidence, you know, they'll say, well, you need this. And then when you supply that, they'll say, oh, that's not good enough. You need more. You know, you need this. Yeah. Once I was arguing with, with uh, an atheist about Lord miracles, and uh, well, I'm not Catholic, but uh, you know I don't think Mary is healing people, but I think God is healing people because they have faith, and Mary is just kind of an addendum to that faith. Mm-hmm. But in any case, 
there was, there was this guy, it's not a Lord miracle, it's a saint making miracle. His name was Charles Ann. And he had, he, this was like 1923. X-rays were new, but they did exist. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, advanced tuberculosis. He was dying. You know, and basically on his deathbed, he prayed. And uh, the next day, he was perfectly well. And so they x-rayed his lungs. They found no trace of TB. And that, uh, that miracle was the second miracle that put uh, St. Teresa of Lernot over as a saint. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was arguing with this atheist, and he, you know, he's going, oh, that's, you know, those x-rays are just made up. That's just a big lie. So I say, well, I talked to a member of the medical committee who assures me they exist. He says, oh, well, he's lying because he's on the medical committee. You know, well, he says that, um, you know, you can buy copies of the x-rays. Okay, well, when you buy me copies of the x-rays and send them to me, then I'll believe it. Well, would he? If I actually was able to buy them and send them to him, would he still believe it or would he say, oh, that's, that, that x-ray is made up? Because mm-hmm. everything that he said I needed, I met, and he would still say it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is usually the same kind of thing that I come across. When I hear about extraordinary evidence, I always treat it as a joke and say, "What does it glow in the dark, or what exactly? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I've even got a meme I keep on my computer I made that say, Extraordinary evidence, it glows in the dark. <laughs> And it is entirely subjective. I, I find most atheists start with their worldview, treat it as a given, and then go from there. I, I call it atheistic presuppositionalism. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's a good phrase. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that this uh, body of evidence, this body of studies that I discovered is an extraordinary, is mm-hmm. extraordinary evidence because there are, you know, a couple of hundred uh, studies in academic journals by psychologists. They're mm-hmm. not Christians, they're not evangelists, they're psychologists. Many of them are atheists. Mm-hmm. And they all show that religious experience is good for you, that it's not mental illness, it's not instability, mm-hmm. and all this sort of thing. I think that's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. When I was in college debate, uh, we only had four studies that proved airbags. Mm. And in the course of that time, that topic to just a few years later, they mandated airbags. Airbags became available on all the cars. Mm-hmm. And it was basically the result of four studies that did it. Mm-hmm. Well, Ralph Hood himself has done 50 studies mm-hmm. on this stuff. And there are other, there are many more studies than that. They're easily, you could easily find a couple of hundred. So, you know, there's, uh, I think that's pretty extraordinary. But they mean, when they say extraordinary, they mean like, God would make the stars spell out, Jesus is Lord, sign up now, you know, or something like that. And that's that, Yeah, I mean, that just, that, that steps on so many theological toes, you can't even begin to talk about it. Actually, uh, Peter Bogosian, in his book, The Manual for Creating Atheists, has said that when he's been asked what it would take to get him to believe, he says he's going to borrow from Lawrence Krauss and say something like, if I went out and saw at night that all the stars spelled out, I am God, believe in me, and everyone else saw this in the world in their own language. That might be suggestive. And he just says, it might be suggestive. Yeah, he might. still says, we could all still be experiencing a delusion. Yeah, right. But and, then why doesn't he believe that we're all experiencing a delusion now? 
Maybe. That's a great now, question. Maybe the, the delusion that there's no proof of God is a delusion. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, yeah, right. And, I mean, there's always something they're going to say. Yeah, and they even refer to how Bill Maher has said that if Jesus will come down in the middle of a Super Bowl and do sort of a touchdown Jesus, well, he'll believe then. Yeah, it depends on which team he scores for. I tell you what, if, he, if, if Jesus came down in, in, in any football game and got the Cowboys into the playoffs, I might consider that it's a miracle, but <laughs> never mind. Yeah, I really don't know enough. Dallas, you know, the Cowboys are always on the back of my mind. I, I really don't know enough about sports to comment. Whenever the Super Bowl comes on around here, uh, Allie watches the game more than I do. I just read my book and then put it down during the commercials. <laughs> um, now, you also go back to the ideas of our ancient history with so many atheists who say that God was thought up just to explain things like lightning and earthquakes and weather patterns and such, and right. you contend that's not really the case. Well, they, I, I think that the reason atheists think that way is because uh, they get so used to being ingrained in, in comparing science to religion that that's their only way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. They can't understand any other reason for believing than uh, some sort of ancient primitive science, you know, that explains the nature of, of the world. Mm -hmm. But, the, you know, I think that the true origin of religion is in um, the sense of the numinous and this mystical experience that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Because it's in every culture, it's in every religion, and it, it goes as far back as we have writing. And there's evidence that it goes back further than that, that you can find, um, well, for example, the uh, Neanderthal burials, I think they're Neanderthal, Shanadar, they're uh, buried with, uh, with mushrooms, they're buried with uh, flowers and stuff, so a lot of people have theorized that that is an indication that they had a sense of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, of course, we can't go back in time and see what they were really yeah. What they were really doing, but uh, since mystical experience is universal to mm -hmm. human culture, and when I say it's universal, a lot of people will say, oh no, they're all different. Well, what's different is the explanations. When people say, I had an experience that told me that there's, a, there's, there's a, a, an overwhelming power of love that was all pervasive and explains the meaning of life. And I'm, in, I'm, a, I'm a Muslim, so therefore that was Allah. I'm a Christian, so therefore that was Jesus. That's, that's what's different about it. But they both they have the same experience. Mm -hmm. And the studies that I'm talking about prove that it's the same experience because they describe it in the same way. Yeah, this is but the, you know, their, their explanation of what it means in relation to their tradition is different. Yeah, this is also like how... I near-death experiences. Some people will say, I saw Jesus. Some will say, I saw Allah. Some will say, I yeah. saw Shiva, or some other being. And Gary Habermas has said about this, that he thinks that people interpret the experience that they have in light of a religious belief that they already possess prior. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what you said also about how atheists look at the data, I think that's something that's not just with atheist data, but with all of us, that we tend to view everything in terms of scientific data, which is a malform of science when we have, for instance, when we read the Genesis account, I think too many people are just immediately say, ah, this is talking about the science of creation, and as we had John Wharton on here last year, and he is, he was, no, this actually doesn't have a single thing to do with science. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that anthropology has come along mm. more in the vein of accepting uh, the sense of the numinous as an explanation for religion. I think that mm. this business of an ancient primitive science is pretty much 19th century thinking. So now, I've noticed that atheists tend to be very ingrained in 19th century understanding of religion. So what you you contend in the book, actually, is that the people already had a religious belief due to something like religious experiences and such, and then interpreted reality fitting in with that belief. So they didn't create, sure. they didn't create exactly. new beliefs, per se, to interpret reality. Right, because they didn't have science. What they yeah. had was belief in God, so they mm-hmm. just fell back on their beliefs to explain things. But yeah. the beliefs were already there, and the beliefs are the result of the sense of the numinous. Yeah, I mean, we can say, for instance, they were wrong about something like, say, lightning, that Jupiter wasn't sitting up on Mount Olympus throwing down lightning bolts, but they never based their theism on the existence of lightning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, let's yeah. get into the, uh, the data some if we're going to start talking about religious experience, where do we go for the data to begin with? Where do we go for it? Yeah. It's my book, of course. <laughs> um, first of all, these studies have been done over a 50-year period. There's a whole bunch of them, mm-hmm. and all kinds of different thinkers have done them. Um, mm-hmm. One of the first one of the first was uh, Abraham Maslow, who's famous for the hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. and various sociological theories. Right. Uh, he he did a book called something about peak experience, and that was about mystical experience. Uh, he is a very very unique guy because he was an atheist, but mm-hmm. he writes in this book like uh, the supernatural is real. And, these experiences are real. I mean, he took them very seriously. So he's just, he's doing what I said they do. Mm-hmm. He's interpreting it through his own tradition, but the experiences are the same. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the, that's, he did, he did some quantitative analysis, but it was very rudimentary because he was mm-hmm. just getting started. I think he was the first to do it. And then the first really rigorous scientific um uh, quantitative analysis that was done with double blind and all this sort of thing was a guy named Wes Now, which was published in the uh, uh, Counseling Psychologist, I think was the name of the journal. This was in the early 70s. I talk about that study in my book, too. Mm-hmm. So um, there's one named Kathleen Noble who did one of the first really good studies on it. There's a book published in the 80s by a woman named Carol Davis Frank. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book is basically trying to use these studies in an apologetics fashion. It's a good book. It's just that um, things hadn't developed that much by that time. So 
it's it's very outdated, but for the period in which it was written, it was a fine book. Um, the main source of information and the best set of studies are are the studies done by a guy named Ralph Hood Jr. Mm-hmm. who teaches at uh, the University of Tennessee Chattanooga. And Hood uh, invented something called the M scale, which is the mysticism scale. And it's a test that you take, and then uh, according to your score, it tells you whether or not your experience was a real mystical experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the, re- the way that it does that is by using the theory of, ra- of uh, W.T. Stace, the English philosopher, as a mm-hmm. base. And what all Stace did was just to read the mystics of the world and sort of distill what he thought they were all saying in common. And then Hood comes along and subjects this to a quantitative analysis and finds that the experiences of modern people stack up with what Stace thought mystics experience. And so he concludes from this that this is what mystical experience is. Mm -hmm. Now there's a a methodological pitfall there and that there could be other experiences that aren't part of uh, part of that. In fact, some people have argued that um, because Stace didn't find any negative experiences in the mystics that were, uh, you know, there are negative experiences, but they didn't find any that were indicative of the overall result then, uh, you know, we're missing, there may be a negative form of mystical experience. And while that is a, that is a consideration and it does limit Hood's studies, um, other researchers have found that the negative aspect is only about 3%, mm-hmm. meaning 3% of the people who have these experiences will have the negative experiences. So it's not a very, it's not a very big factor. And, and actually, I think it's a different thing. Because if you look at what the negative experience is being derived from, it's coming from things like out-of-body, astral travel, and things like that. It's not really coming from mystical experience. So it's the most more... negative thing that I found from mystical experience is uh, a sense of anxiety that's associated with transcendental meditation. But that's a short-term effect. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about the effects, the effects are positive and life-transforming. I'm talking about long-term effects. Yeah, because well, first off, it's worth mentioning that Ralph Hood, you spoke so much about, does endorse your book. That's right on the cover. Yeah, uh, who does? Yeah, you're Ralph Hood. Yeah. And then... Oh, you, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I didn't hear you good. And then when you talk about the short-term anxiety, my guess is you're probably talking about like, people who just who have this kind of experience and everything. What the heck just happened to me? Am I going yeah. crazy? Am I losing my mind? And yeah, that's part of it. And but also, it's a the short-term anxiety thing is associated with transcendental meditation, mm-hmm. and a lot of TMs is associated with cults and groups that have austere practices and stuff. So it's hard to separate that and say um, their anxiety is really from the experience or is it really from the group? You know. Could it also sometimes be from a sort of paradigm shift? If you're an atheist, yeah. like you were, and you have this religious experience, you're like, "Oh my gosh, my worldview just got thrown out of whack entirely." Well, that's a that's a famous syndrome called the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. and um, not not 
I don't mean your statement about atheists going, oh, I can't be an atheist anymore, but the sense that I have this paradigm shift and I'm not used to it, I don't know what's happening, that, you know, that's, uh, Evelyn Underhill writes about the, uh, the dark night of the soul is the soul trying to adjust to a new level of reality and a new level of consciousness and, and then pulling back from that to seek the stability of the old level. And it, it manifests itself in terms of depression and anxiety, but that's a temporary state. Doesn't that go back to St. John of the Cross? Yes. And when you were talking about the history of a study of religious experience, what about William James's book, Variety of Religious Experiences? Oh, yes. Um, that's That would be an excellent one to start out reading, after mm. you read mine, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hood is probably the world's greatest William James fan. Mm. And he used William James a lot in his studies and his work. So his, his findings definitely reflect the influence of William James as well. Mm. I guess what I was trying to say was, when you start doing research on this is that when you're doing your research on this book, all you did for it, the material was you went to peer-reviewed, scientific, highly accepted journals and just took what they had, right? Well, yeah, that's that was a large part of it, but I also uh, read other books. I mean, yes, essentially, my research involved reading, but... Uh, I also talked to Hood on the phone uh, a lot. I asked him like a thousand stupid questions. Mm -hmm. He didn't know me. I was never his student. I just emailed him one day and said, hey, I'm writing this book. Could you answer this question? And then we became friends, and I started calling him and mm -hmm. asking him stupid questions and stuff, and he gamely endured it and answered them all. And so he's a great guy. Mm -hmm. And there were also a couple of other of the major researchers, a guy named Nielsen, who's at a university in Georgia, um, and some other people that I have communicated. I actually uh, did email and got an answer from Love now. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there, there are several of them that I communicated with. So uh, it was basically book research, which is what mm -hmm. I was trained to do as a graduate student. Mm -hmm combined with uh, actually talking to the researchers and asking questions. Now, you talked about Hood having an ilm scare to determine if someone really had a religious experience. What is this ilm scare? Um, it's a 32-item test. Mm -hmm. It just asks you questions like, uh, have you had a an overpowering experience where you felt like you were uh, being surrounded by an all-pervasive sense of love. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, it's about 32 questions like that. And there's a way, there's a tricky way to score it, and I've never learned how to score it because I don't have to. But um, the point of it is that if you answer the questions in a certain way, it stacks up with the theory that stays laid out for the nature of mystical experience, and then we can assume that you had a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. Well, he took that he took that test and he had it translated into different languages, and he had it administered in um, the United United Kingdom, in Sweden, in Iran, India, Japan, 
and there might be a couple of other countries that I'm overlooking, but basically around the world. And in all of these different countries, it came up the same, that people have the same level of experience, and they're experiencing what states said they would experience. And so he deduces from that that uh, Stasis theory is validated because the experience of real-world people actually does conform to what space thought a mystic experience is. Would this include, in fact, countries that we usually think are more atheistic? Well, I don't think of uh, India or Iran as atheistic. I think you're thinking of Sweden. Yeah. But actually, Sweden, I think Sweden's level of atheism is overrated. Greeley is another famous researcher um, did another another study that found that uh, Sweden almost was only ten uh, percent hardcore atheist, mm-hmm. and the definition of hardcore is that they believed there was no god. They were definite about there being no god, so that means there was something like thirty five percent softcore, and softcore included the possibility that there might be some sort of supreme being. So, really. Um, they're only 10% what I would say is a real atheist. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're not really, um, you might say, fixed for Christianity like they used to be. So that's, that's really what I think is going on with Sweden, is that they have figured out different um, cultural constructs that have arranged their religious lives in a way that's foreign to the American experience. You had and there some... are a lot of Swedes that are unabashed about being atheists and calling themselves atheists and so forth. I was just curious because you had said countries all over the world, and I'm thinking something like, yeah, but these are countries where people are already religious, so of course we're going to have religious experiences. Well, there are atheists who have these experiences, mm-hmm. and it works just like with any other, with any religious faith. They have an experience, and it's the same experience as the religious experience, but because they, they have an aversion to ascribing things to God, they're going to ascribe it to uh, some sort of scientific explanation or something else. So they use the term God, but the experience themsel- itself is the same experience. Yeah. It's yeah. like a Buddhist, you know, the Buddhist is saying, oh, Buddha did Even uh, A.J. Ayer, a famous atheist, had a near-death experience where he said he saw a red light that he understood was to be the governor of the universe, and still came out of it saying, there is no God. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about these kinds of religious experiences taking place, what is the... Uh, what what is the effect that that it has on people when they have them? Well, um, the base, the primary effect is that uh, your life is made a lot better. You mm-hmm. have uh, less uh, depression, mm-hmm. and therefore less uh, propensity for mental illness. Uh, they they have, a lot of these studies find that the, the people who have the mystical experiences are more highly educated. But that's, that's probably not a result of the experience. It's probably the precondition for it. But um, 
you know, they're uh, given a sense of, of hope, a sense of uh, the explanation of, they feel that they understand the nature of the universe. There's, a, there's an aspect of mystical experience called the noetic experience, which mm-hmm. means information is being imparted, that you're actually learning something that can be put into words. I mean, the kind of thing that we're talking about is general general stuff, like God loves you, life is meaningful, things, mm-hmm. you know, there's a reason for living. And, um, you know, so overall, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a long list of uh, positive things that result from it. Uh, there's a there's a site that um, has uh, distilled the results of the Work Now study and the Noble study. I'm going to read that list. These mm-hmm. are long-term effects from Work Now. They say their lives are more meaningful. They think about meaning and purpose. They know what the purpose of life is. They meditate more. They score higher. Score higher on self-rated personal talents and capabilities. They're less likely to value material possessions. Mm. Get high pay, job security, have um, having friends, mm. greater value on work for social change, mm. solving social problems, helping the needy, reflective, interdirected, self-aware self-confident lifestyle, the noble study, they experience more productive psychological health than illness, less authoritarian and dogmatic, more assertive, imaginative, self-sufficient, intelligent, relaxed, high ego strength, relationships, symbolization values, integration, um, psychological maturity, self-acceptance, self-worth, autonomy, um, need for solitude, increased love and compassion. So a lot of that may be mm-hmm. uh, preconditions that enabled them to have it rather than the result of having had it, but some of it is clearly the result of having had it. Yeah, I'm wondering, it sounds like even in my own wife might have had such an experience earlier this year because she'd been in a time of depression and we found a really good church and we started going to it and we both really, really like it, and she's had depression all of her life, had to take medications for it, and February, something happened, and she just suddenly saw things differently, and today her psychiatrist is even saying, you don't need to take medication for depression anymore, it's gone. Hmm. That's great. Does that qualify as religious experience, then, or... Not, not, you can't say it just by the effects. Okay. You'd have to administer the M scale and see what her score is on it. Mm-hmm. You know, did she have an experience where it seemed like uh, she could see a great unity in everything at all? Uh, no. Not that I know of. Okay. Or did she have an experience where she felt like there was an all-pervasive presence of love around her? Maybe. But okay. Would so it that, be... That might be a mystical experience. Yeah. Would it be possible for someone to have an experience that comes from God than without being necessarily a mystical experience? Right? Sure. Okay. Sure. And Hood has found that uh, other kinds of experiences mm. still lead to a high score on the M scale. For mm-hmm. example, um, 
the born again experience. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's uh, there's a larger umbrella, like we said at first, of religious experience, and under that umbrella, you find a mystical experience, out of body, near death, and all these other things. They're all under this major umbrella. Yeah. I'm wondering how this would relate to. I think C.S. Lewis called it Zangzucht, where the idea that and Peter Kraft has written much about this with the argument from desire, especially his book Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing, where he says that there can be times that he says we all have desires. You have desire for food, there's food. You desire sex, there's sex. You desire water, there's water, etc. He says that we all get aware of a desire we have that can't be filled by anything on the surface. Then he says, and when you're made very aware of this desire, you know you're lacking something, but... And that will, I, I think I see where you're going there. That relates to the first version mm -hmm. of the co-determinant argument that Schleiermacher made, mm -hmm. which was sort of like saying, uh, you know, there, I feel love for God, so there must be a God that I feel love for. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think you could see the flaw in that argument. But uh, the second version, the version that I use, the co-determinant argument, is uh, I think a lot better because it doesn't it doesn't have that uh, that flaw in it. I think that flaw might be characterized as uh, begging the question. Yeah. And sort of you're sort of assuming um, beforehand the thing that you're trying to find. Yeah, I think Craig does go into a bit more detail with it, but I'm wondering if the experience that Lewis called Zangzucht would be classified as religious experience, or would it just be kind of mm -hmm. something that's religious well, but doesn't his reach... Well, book, Surprised by Joy, he talks about hmm. an experience. Hmm. Um, you know, I think there's, I think he, could, he definitely had a mystical experience or some sort of religious experience. Mm -hmm. uh, William Lane Craig also talks about having had one. Hmm. Now, when William Lane Craig talks about be a testimony of a Holy Spirit... Do you think he's really talking about a religious experience there, or just yeah. some... Okay. Right. Now, when it comes to these religious experiences, you've said that they're, by and large, in fact, I think you've even implied entirely positive, aren't they? That they're what? Entirely positive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, like I said before, the uh, some negativity that's that's associated with them is short term. Mm -hmm. and None of them are, you know. I found I didn't I didn't find any kind of quantitative examples of people who went on a downward spiral and their lives ended in the gutter and they were ruined by it. And mm -hmm. you know, after a long period of time, they were sorry they did it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. you know? It's all, uh, you know, and then that was one of my one of my first arguments before I even started on the book that I used to make on message boards was that uh, mental illness is degenerative. So with mental illness, you often get worse, and if it goes untreated, you don't get better. You don't. Mental illness doesn't start making you happier and more funny and better. You know, it's uh, it's bringing you down constantly, mm -hmm. and uh, these experiences build you up, and they mm -hmm. wind up in a positive way, so mm -hmm. they're 
therefore they're not the result of mental illness. And then I found mm-hmm. like 25 studies that say they're not the result of mental illness. So mm-hmm. Now, you say that the purpose of bringing up the religious experience argument is to change the a priori in debate so that the burden of proof becomes more on the atheistic thinker, right? Right. Um, prima, the prima facie, mm-hmm. uh, don't confuse a priori with prima facie. Mm-hmm. Prima facie means um, you're meeting a, a face value evidential burden. Mm-hmm. And a priori means that it's true by definition. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I want to change the field of debate so that the, uh, you know, the atheist has to go on the defensive. Mm-hmm. Now, some atheists have responded to this research. The main one you mentioned is Proudfoot, right? Yes, Wayne Proudfoot. Mm-hmm. Well, so, he didn't, he, to be specific, he responded to previous authors. He doesn't know about my books yet. He doesn't know about the two chapters I did on him. <laughs> Yeah, well, as I guess far I should send him a copy. As far as, far um, as you know, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so Proudfoot, I thought was one of the main uh, main guys to deal with because he's a he's a major philosopher. He's considered very prominent, and I think his arguments are are really good in that they're you know they're difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean I don't think I dealt with them. <laughs> But that's because I had the help of other people. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy that has already written criticisms of Proudfoot named Bernard. He's at SMU, and I talked to him, got his uh, his take on it through, on the phone. Mm-hmm. So I refer to his work in my book. So I have two chapters on Proudfoot. So what does Proudfoot really say about these religious experiences? And well, essentially, he's saying that um, religious experience is just a matter of relabeling uh, ordinary experiences that are the result of physiological phenomena. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, he talks about an, an example from William James' book where this guy was having uh, having all of these experiences and he had, a, he had one that he thought was suspiciously reminiscent of a heart attack and um, he's calling it a, uh, a response to the Holy Spirit so Proudfoot just theorizes that the guy had a heart attack and he had to explain it in some way that uh, allowed him to, to, to feel that God was with him so he labeled it as a religious experience mm-hmm. and that's that's you know one, one of the basic assumptions that he makes is that there's no real inner life. He doesn't believe, you know, he thinks the emotions are uh, just sort of surface level and we don't really we don't really have interior motivations and stuff. He's very reductionistic in his outlook. He's really, he's very uh, akin to the uh, Daniel Dennett's mm-hmm. take on consciousness. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so that's the essence of his relabeling argument. Mm-hmm. And I'm my counter to him is that um, that he's ideologically motivated to see things in that way because he is 
imbued with this sort of philosophical reductionism, where he, where he thinks that everything can be reduced to the, you know, the most basic qualities, and there's no inner life and all this sort of thing. So he's just, he's the one who's actually doing the labeling. So whatever, whatever the believer finds, um, you know, in the way of an experience, this guy is just going to label it, you know, no, it's not. It's not that way. It's not God. It's not a miracle. It's just, you know, whatever. And uh, he's the one doing the labeling and doing the reducing. Well, before I respond, I'd like to let all my listeners know, since we're at the halfway point, that this is the Deeper Waters podcast coming to you at a later time. My guest this week I've been interviewing is Joseph Hinman. He's the author of the new book, The Trace of God. But if you're listening next week, and I hope you will, we're going to be having Abdul Murray come on. He's an ex-Muslim, now a Christian apologist, who's written a book, The Grand Central Question, asking what is the grand central question of every worldview, and how does Christianity fare out? It's going to be an interesting interview, and I hope you'll be here next week. Now, getting back to uh, Joseph, what... You've said about Proudfoot was that he's ideologically driven, that he's just interpreting things in light of his reductionistic worldview, but couldn't he turn and say, well, you're interpreting things in light of your theistic worldview, you want to find God, and lo and behold, you're finding him? Well, uh, sure, but first of all, uh, a lot of these experiences are conversion experiences, which means... You don't have a previous uh, file of religious dogma that has to be met. Mm-hmm. And work now study shows that um, a lot of the, the experiences were totally unexpected. So mm-hmm. they're not um, they're not a placebo, and it's not a matter. It can't be a matter of just relabeling them because you don't have a, the labels available to you if you're mm-hmm. not. A believer to begin with, and then another aspect is um, that a lot of times these experiences will contradict cherished doctrines, mm-hmm. and so there's you know there's no reason why you would uh, be expecting something to contradict your cherished doctrine. So it can't be just the way you're looking at it, you know, mm-hmm. the because you expect to see things that way. And then finally, I show that uh, about in, a, in some studies, about half the recipients were children. And I draw up on Hood's book that he wrote with a guy named Spilka, where they show that um, they show studies that find that uh, children do not have doctrinal hangups. Mm-hmm. So these these kids that are having these experiences are not just relabeling stuff according to their doctrines because they don't have doctrines. Yeah. So what you're saying is the reason that we should see these more in light of theism instead is these are kind of Damascus Road experiences. Well, sure, you could you could you could put it that way. What I'm saying is that the uh, the actual data does not confirm the assumptions that Proudfoot is making in relation to the labeling. Well, what I mean by Damascus Road more is that you got, for instance, Saul walking down this road. Oh, here. right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. The, the unbeliever is confronted with the reality 
yeah. of the thing that he's working against and doesn't believe in. Mm-hmm. Right, good point, yeah. Yeah, although, to be fair, now a lot of atheists are starting to say, well, Saul might have had a guilt complex about what he was doing, and just suddenly changed his mind on the road, and with someone who studies history, being, yeah, he's not going to just going to change his mind like that and then embrace the belief that will put his life on the line and then become the greatest evangelist for that belief. Well, and also that would be arguing from analogy. Mm-hmm. I mean, just because that might be true in Paul's case doesn't mean you can assert that it's true in every case. Mm-hmm. An well, argument from analogy is usually pretty perilous. Well, there are other arguments, though, against religious experiences. Someone would say, well, maybe there's a God gene that we all have, and that's causing us to have these experiences. Well, I didn't... Uh, I write about that end of things in the third from the last chapter, I mm. think, chapter six. Yes. It's called um, God on the Brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, it talks about, I start out talking about um, the uh, Dekilo and, uh, uh, what's his name, Why God Won't Go Away, the mm-hmm. book Why God Won't Go Away. Mm-hmm. And I, now I'm having an over 40 moment and I can't think of the author's name, but um, even though it's a, it's a name I've said a million times. Anyway, um and I talk about other, uh, that's where I talk about John Hicks' book, where he studied the Prestinger and the guys who uh, have the helmet that stimulates mystical experience and supposedly evokes it in the laboratory. I've just so, looked... you know, I do, deal, I do deal with that. But, uh, but as far as a God gene goes, I, the evidence that I put forth in the book shows that we are not at a point where we can talk about a God gene. There's no real evidence for it. Mm-hmm. It's still at a totally theoretical level. That's coming from uh, the McNamara book, uh, God and Science. God and Science Meet. And uh, you know, there's a Pinker, the the major uh, the major atheist. Uh, Talks about takes the position that there's no God gene and other uh, other people, other geneticists and uh, neurologists take that position, and they say that you know it could be just spandrels. In other words, a combination of different genetic functions working together in a certain way. Well, okay, all of this, all of this whole aspect of it, is it brain chemistry? Is it Genetics, is it something naturalistic? All of this is answered in Hood's argument, which I call the receptor argument, which says that, you know, God created us as um, flesh and blood beings. Our bodies work in a certain way, our, our, our minds are hooked up to our brains, our brains work by chemistry. So if God wants to, to communicate with us, he's going to have to communicate with us through our brains mm-hmm. and through our brain chemistry. And so obviously we have receptors that can interpret that and can pick it up, and that's going to manifest itself in the part, the empirical aspect that we can study. It's going to look like just brain chemistry, but that doesn't prove 
that there's nothing else going on behind the brain chemistry. Well, first off, to help you out, know, I did just look it up. Why God Won't Go Away, Brain Science and the Biology of Belief, Andrew Newberg. Yes, yes Newberg. Okay. Newberg. Now, I kept wanting to call him Newhouse. <laughs> I think what you're talking about with finding an explanation for it, it'd be like a, let's suppose the account of Sodom and Gomorrah being judged by God in the Bible is true, but instead we find that there was a volcanic eruption that rained down brimstone and flames on the cities, for instance, and destroyed them, where if we find that naturalistic explanation, it's not going to mean Oh, well, I guess the Bible got it wrong. It could just as well mean, say, yes, there was this eruption that happened then, and God used this natural event to judge a wicked city. Right, exactly. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. A lot of atheists respond to that by, by acting like, um, you know, God can't work in the natural. Anything that's naturalistic, it's just a done deal. That's, mm -hmm. You know, that's all they need to hear. It's naturalistic. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that's just a, a huge mistake to assume that that God can't work in the natural. I mean, he, God created the natural. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't he be able to work in it? You know, I mean, I think there's a false dichotomy that people have learned to put up between natural and supernatural. One thing that I have learned is that, and this is coming to me through uh, my old professor at Perkins, William S. Babcock, who's mm -hmm. the church historian, um, and Babcock says that the term missed up, the term uh, supernatural was first coined by Dionysus the Areopagite in, you know, around 500 AD, and that term was used by Dionysus in order to refer to mystical experience. Mm -hmm. So mystical experience itself is the original meaning of the term supernatural. And that means that, that supernatural, in that sense, is empirical. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea that supernatural is, uh, you know, a place, a realm, or a, a collection of psychic powers and ghosts and magic and things that go bump in the night and all the stuff that's not natural, that is a modern uh, Enlightenment era understanding yeah. that superseded the original Christian usage of the term. Yeah, that's why I prefer to not even use the term supernatural anymore because it's been hijacked so much. And right. Craig Keener, in his book, Miracles, I'm not sure if you've read it yet or not, it's an excellent book, and we've had him on the show before for an interview. He says he prefers to use the term superhuman. Rather than supernatural. I haven't had a chance to get that book yet, but I've read reviews of it, and mm -hmm. it sounds great. It's something that I'm really looking forward to getting a hold of. Well, it's definitely one worth reading, and I'd say the podcast where I interviewed him is one worth listening to mm -hmm. as well. Now, there does seem to be this thing that, you know, if we find a natural explanation, it gets me even about how G.K. Chesterton has said that uh, if there was one miracle out there, if just one story is true of a bona fide miracle, then atheism just falls apart at that yeah. point. That, that it, it's done. There's one act there. On the other hand, I 
so you know you can disprove a thousand and one miracles for me and if you disprove say the resurrection of Jesus well yeah Christianity's done okay that doesn't mean theism is done it could be every single miracle is proven false and theism is still true we could have some form of deism for all we know right well it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't mean the end of Christianity but it would mean that you have to go to Perkins to learn about it. <laughs> Never mind. Now, Perkins is very liberal, you see. That's the yeah the basis of my joke there. Yeah. Now, you talked about this God gene. So another aspect to talk about it also is the, the God helmet. And I think uh, that uh, Richard Dawkins makes some of this in the God delusion. that says we can recreate these experiences with a God helmet. Well, the, the thing about that is they, they don't have any way to prove that they recreated it because mm -hmm. they don't use any kind of control mechanism to determine whether they had a mystical experience. They're not, mm -hmm. they're not using the M scale or any other scale mm -hmm. that is designed to de make such a determination. So mm -hmm. they're, just, they're just saying uh, somebody had a feeling, felt real happy, that's all, and he thought about God, so that's a religious experience, so therefore we created it. And this is, uh, you know, John Hick uh, debunks that pretty well, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's one of the great weaknesses of those kinds of uh, studies. Mm -hmm. But another weakness is that it's, it's totally taken out by the receptor argument. Mm -hmm. All they've really done is is open up the receptor. Mm -hmm. So they haven't, you know, they haven't proven that uh, that there's no God there on the other end of the experience. All they've proven is that that God is is using. Well, and, and but this is a salient point though that needs to be addressed. Um, what you've got at that point is a tie. It could be God, or it could be, um, you know, the naturalistic situation so how do you determine which it is mm -hmm. well i show you how to determine that at the end of that chapter about uh about placebos and drugs where mm -hmm. i present eight tiebreakers mm -hmm. and i won't tell you what the tiebreakers are because i want people to buy the book that makes but sense i'll give you a hint that uh a lot of it it, it basically involves the fact that uh why do these things always come out so positively, why if it's just a, a mistake or an accident or a misfire in brain chemistry, why does it always result in this positive result? Mm -hmm. You know, so I but, but I I developed that through eight separate arguments at the end of that chapter. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're curious enough about about that, you want to buy the book and read that chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Mike Lacona has said, I mean, he's talking about miracles, and he said, one of the signs that this is some, from God is that it happens in an environment charged with religious significance, such as if uh, you have someone who's sitting at their home and they're blind, and someone comes by and prays for them in the name of Jesus, that they be healed, and all of a sudden they're healed, you can say, well, that was an act of God. But if someone is just sitting in their home blind and all of a sudden something happens and their eyes open and they can see there's no prayer, 
nothing going on, and say, well, that could be a fluke. I mean, it could still be a miracle, but you don't have enough to really say that it was an act of God at that point. Well, I think that most uh, most of the time when people have these experiences, they do get the noetic uh, mm-hmm. experience that, you know, that involves God. That's why, that's mm-hmm. why they're often uh, conversion experiences or, you know, something, something of that nature that they, they're actually, they feel that they are experiencing God. Yeah. But to get to the God helmet thing also, I've been told that uh, the person who invented the God helmet himself later on did have a religious experience and said, yeah, this is nothing like what my helmet does. <laughs> Well, I, I'd like to find that. I, would, I, I hope there's documentation of that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, but, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can find it for you sometime. Okay. No. But that chapter in The Trace of God, my book, The Trace of God, does mm-hmm. deal with that. Now, we do need to discuss something that you did talk about just now, and that's the chapter that deals with the topic of drugs and placebos and such, because some people say, Look, I know several people that can take LSD or something like that, and they will have some really, really awesome experiences. So uh, <laughs> why should I think this isn't something that's drug-induced? Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, in my, in, my, in my misspent youth, I had some experience along those lines. And uh, so did a lot of my friends and my brother uh, I think there's a vast difference, but uh, the actual literature shows that um, that there is a big difference in things like the duration of the experience and the noetic level of the experience. But uh, you, you know, for example, you have the Good Friday experiment where okay. this guy Painter gave uh, the control group. Uh, a church service and the experimental group psilocybin and the experimental group had a lot more experiences and a lot deeper experiences uh, but then when you examine his data you find that everyone in his sample had mystical experiences as children so that opens the door to the argument to the receptive argument that well you're just reviving a memory of what they had as a child. You're not really creating it. The drug is not creating it. Mm-hmm. The drug is just bringing back what they already had experienced. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's no real, there's no real proof there. Mm-hmm. And this now there's uh, there's a better study. There's a newer study called by a guy named Griffiths from Johns Hopkins, where he gives psilocybin and he administered the M scale, and so he finds that. The, uh, the psilocybin group had much, much deeper, longer-lasting experiences. But, um, you know, he himself makes the receptor argument. He says, there, this is not proof that God is not involved in religious experience. It's only proof that, uh, you know, brain chemistry is involved, but not that it originates in brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. And this is also what we do when they have nuns come in and study nuns while they're praying and such. And, of course, I mean, we shouldn't have any objection 
to that and if a nun's praying and something's happening where of course something is going to be going on in her brain right well yeah that's the newberg newberg study mm -hmm. that's uh that's what uh why god won't go away mm -hmm. but uh yeah i agree that doesn't uh that doesn't prove anything it's interesting it doesn't really prove anything so some that would make the uh, idea of drugs being responsible for this is that these drugs were first off they're personally induced and you can't really force yourself to have a religious experience you can't force god to act in some way and right. then second that these drugs they often come with other harmful side effects that would lead to things like brain damage and things of that sort right mm -hmm. yeah so that's a good point um i think the atheist would say that the just the fact of uh, of, of approximating the experience proves that it's just chemically oriented but that assumes um you know that that makes that assumption about a hard a hard distinction between supernatural and natural and that just uh just having the the presence of any kind of naturalistic agent is enough for them to stop asking questions mm -hmm. and i don't think that is warranted well we're about the hour and 20 mark here so i'd like to remind everyone that everything that we do here it's supported financially by donations from people like you out there who are listening in fact, if you're wondering why we're not coming from a regular studio and why you, we can't take your calls right now, it's because those donations haven't been coming in. And that's exactly what we need to do this. And so, if you're interested in supporting the work of Deeper Waters, please go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com and make your donations there. Or you can donate, in fact, through the Ministry of Risen Jesus. That's the Ministry of Michael Lacona. And just send him a donation and say, hey, I want this to go to Nick Peters. I want this to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure there that we get every single penny of that donation. And it is tax deductible. And I'd also like to let you all know that we have a new resource out on the market. My ministry partner, J.P. Holding, and I have written a book responding to Norm Geisler and the charges he's made against evangelical scholarship and it's called defining inerrancy it's available for four bucks on kinder and some of every purchase does go to support the work of deeper water so i highly encourage you to take that out and daniel wallace even wrote a very very glowing review of it last night and we've got a forward by craig blomberg so it's just yeah i'm biased but it's a great book for you to have you can read it one evening and as wallace says it's an evening well spent so just letting you know that please support the work of Deeper Waters. We really need it here. Now, to get back, my guest is Joseph Hyman. We're talking about his book, The Trace of God. Now, you said as soon as an atheist finds something natural, that's enough. The atheist, I'm sure, is going to come and say, well, you have a God of a gaps mentality going on here, though, that you have this unknown gap here, and you're just fitting in God. You know, atheists think that it's a god of the gaps argument any time there's something unknown mm -hmm. involved. God of the gaps, first of all, is not a fallacy. God of the gaps, a god of the gaps argument might well be a true argument. The only problem 
with God of the Gaps is that the gaps get closed. Mm-hmm. But God of the Gaps means that you're arguing strictly from a dearth of information. Mm-hmm. And you're asserting, well, we don't know what this is, therefore it must be X. But I'm not doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, yes, we have, we, we have an unknown there in that God is beyond our understanding. But it's not a God of the gaps argument because there are logical mm-hmm. barriers, so to speak, or logical structures that prompt and warrant my conclusions. Mm-hmm. For example, um, Hood shows us that religious experience of the mystical type is universal. It's found in all cultures and all faiths. And it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be universal because religious symbols are cultural constructs, and religion is a cultural matter. Mm-hmm. So because it's universal and they're all having the same experiences, that would imply that there's something objective outside the human mind that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so that is not a God of the gaps argument. That's a positive, uh, positive warrant. Yeah. You know, there's a reason to think this other than just not knowing the answer. Um, and there are other there are other aspects of it that are also positive ones. I'm thinking of the uh, uh, that forest fires, for instance, can happen quite naturally. In fact, a number of forest rangers would tell you you need a forest fire every now and then helps clear away the overgrowth and such. Mm-hmm. And you can have one when a lightning bolt strikes. But suppose I'm an arson investigator and I'm studying this fire and I see um, I see. Well, geez, look, here's where it starts, and I think I see the remains of a tent. It looks like there were some sticks gathered here. I see a few matches. I, I think someone started a fire, and I can imagine it'd be a bit bizarre if a fellow investigator came up and said, Look, these things can happen naturally. All you're doing is creating an arsonist of the gaps at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Good, good argument. Yeah. But another aspect of it that one might advance that's a positive warrant is uh, the effects on the individual and their relationship to our uh, epistemic judgment. That, mm-hmm. that's, this is the essence of my God argument. This is how I, this, I make this argument in Chapter 2, mm-hmm. and it's uh, basically the, the argument of the book mm-hmm. that... Um, we have a, a, a sort of a natural epistemic uh, criteria that we apply to experiences to determine whether or not we're really experiencing them. Mm-hmm. And a very simple, uh, well, that it's regular, that it's consistent, mm-hmm. and that it's intersubjective. A very mm-hmm. simple uh, example would be if I want to open the window because I think it's hot, I'm going to say, are you hot? I'm hot. Are you hot too? Shall I open the window? Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, you know, can you verify my experience that it's hot? So, you know, this is something we can judge as a real experience. It's really hot. But um, another example would be if you see, you're at night and you look up in the sky and you see a, a, a glowing object and it seems to hover for a long time and move away and you think it might be a UFO or something, and you say to your friend, did you see that thing? You know, so you're saying, is, is this it hallucinating? Yeah. You know? Well, these studies, because we can identify what is mystical experience and what is its effect 
we can show that X are in coordination with that criteria, that they are regular, they are consistent, and they are intersubjective. So therefore, they fit the criteria that we use mm -hmm. to determine reality. Mm -hmm. And that means we should be able to trust them. We should right. assume that they're real mm -hmm. or that they're indicative of a reality. Yeah. You know, we, we can also say the God of the Gaps has this idea that it, it comes with this assumption if you fill in all the gaps properly, you won't find God, which there's really no backing by C4. In fact, when we look at the history of science, that a lot of the great scientists, that the more gaps they filled in, the more they thought they were, in fact, serving God, and mm -hmm. they found God even more glorious when they found out the answer to a question. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, yes, I think that, you know, atheists overused the God of the Gaps argument. Mm-hmm. Now, when... We're still and there is also an atheism of the gaps, and yeah. in fact, I think that uh, you know, trying to reduce everything to uh, brain chemistry and so forth—that is an example of the atheism of the gaps. Uh, you're just assuming that whatever whatever can be pinned down as naturalistic must be uh, sans God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I often do refer to it as the naturalism. Of the gaps. Yeah, right. There you go. Yeah, every worldview has gaps, but if you get independent evidence elsewhere for God, such as, say, religious experience, then it fits in just fine just to use God, then, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, when we come to how this art is used in apologetic endeavors, I'm sure there are several apologists and who are having. Yeah, I'm just still not very sure how this all fits in, especially with in evangelical faith, as it were. I mean, how how is it that we can rely on experiences so much when experiences are subjective? And let's not forget, we're getting contradictory messages from these experiences because people are having experiences of Allah and Shiva and everyone else out there. So how can we, if we're going to be Well, good... I think the things that I've already said have answered this, but I'll just group yeah. them together and show how. Mm. First of all, uh, remember I said that the experiences themselves are the same. It's the way they explain them that right. differ, and they explain them according to their own tradition. Mm -hmm. But if you take those names out and you take the doctrines out and you just look at what they experience, they're describing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So the experience itself is universal. Mm -hmm. And then um, how does it fit? Um, well, I think the argument that I just gave about epistemic judgment is a pretty good, a pretty good use of it apologetically, mm -hmm. that you can make a, a, a really good unanswerable argument. The only valid answer that I've really ever found atheists to use against that is that it's an old-fashioned kind of epistemology. But I don't think that really matters because I think that their epistemology is uh, very much wrapped up in Hume and Descartes, and so they're using the same, really, it's the same epistemology. Yeah, so I, I don't think that's really even an, an, an argument. I often find it amusing to hear atheists talk so much about how 
Christians are so outdated and don't keep up with matters and you know, and you're using your favorite arguments from the 18th century and when it comes to historical Jesus, you're using arguments from the 19th century, so hey, at least you're improving a little bit there, but the data is still the same. The only thing you're changing is saying where we've got modern science now and then still, as you said earlier, assuming that that means where it's atheistic then. Right. Mm. Now, one aspect also, I think a lot of Christians now listening here believe to hear this, is that you do say we can't look to religious experience to give us theological content, as it were. Like, you can't derive your doctrines of God from a religious experience, or you shouldn't at least. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. Why is this exactly? I mean, if this well, is... because other than the noetic, the noetic examples are... Mm-hmm sort of general and they're going to really agree with, with, they're not really doctrinal disputes, but what's what's being communicated in a mystical experience is not a doctrine. It's not something that you could put into a doctrine. Like you're not getting, you're not experiencing Christ rising on the third day or the, the Son proceeding from the Father and the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. you know, or, or whatever. Think of, think of your favorite doctrinal controversy. You're not experiencing the answer to a doctrinal controversy. You're experiencing God directly. So there's no, you can't, you can't um, just make this one-to-one correspondence. In fact, you know, you know, mystics have a lot of trouble talking about their experiences, and when they do talk about them, they have to load them into cultural constructs, and that's why they define them by their own religious uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Because there's really no other way to do it, and that's the point that I'm making in in the final chapter of the Trace of God. I'm talking about um, the way that metaphor, all of language is metaphorical, and metaphors bridge the gap between the known and the unknown. And so I'm saying that uh, you know we can understand this as an experience of God, but it's not about words on paper. It's not just to formulate doctrines, it's to actually love God and to feel God's love for us. Mm-hmm. And so you couldn't have a religious experience and use that experience to prove any specific worldview. Like you can't say, I have a religious experience, therefore Jesus rose from the dead, or I have a religious experience, therefore the Quran is the word of Allah. Well, you could, you could say that uh, this confirms in your thinking that, that your view is correct, yeah, but you can. can't say it's proof. You can't yeah. say this is... But, um, you know, I think that doctrinal, doctrinal issues have never been decided based on experiences. They're decided on uh, logical grounds and scriptural grounds and authoritative grounds. You know, we, we could make a possible exception though with the uh, disciples claim to have personally seen the risen Christ, for instance, that could count as an experience, couldn't it? Well, yes, but it's an experience of something that was literally there. It's yes. not just a, an experience without, you know, it's not a contentless experience, it's an experience that relates to an actual uh, object in space yeah. and time. Yeah, so what you're saying is that if a disciples had all individually had this private experience they thought, I've felt that Jesus is real, he's right here, he's risen from the dead, 
therefore he's resurrected, and we could just look around and say, well, okay, we're pretty sure you've had a religious experience, but that doesn't prove what you're saying about Jesus. Well, that's, it was more, that, that was seeing him actually there is more than just a religious experience. Right. It's an actual experience. Yeah, but, right. uh, if they if hadn't seen him there, they just had some, some that they thought was like an internal awareness. Right, they just had a nice idea that, he's, that he must be risen because I feel happy. Yeah. You know, that is not, uh, that might be a religious experience, but it's not a, uh, it's, it's not an eyewitness confirmation. Yeah, and that certainly is, unfortunately, what the number of atheists I meet seem to think happened, that these disciples got together and they all had these private experiences, and then they slowly convinced themselves that Jesus rose from the dead, and off they go from that. So, you're saying that that's the kind of thing that's not being talked about, and if it was, then we really shouldn't be taking this claim too seriously. Well, uh, you know, I think that... Um... I came to believe in Jesus because of an experience, but it wasn't just an experience by itself. I mean, there was right. a there was a whole uh, worldview involved. Mm -hmm. That worldview uh, involved a lot of different issues and a lot of uh, thinking about them and and so forth. But it was sort of sort of uh, blown away by the experience. Hmm. You know, I, when you asked about how these experiences are described. I'm thinking uh, again of how Gary Habermas talks about near-death experiences where when people come back and ask, what was it like? He says, well, it was like, no, no, I can't tell you that because if I say that, you're thinking of this and it just doesn't match. And the colors are, well, I can't tell you the colors because it just doesn't describe it. The idea with each of these near-death experiences seems to be, if I start to even begin to describe it, it's going to fall short of what it really is. Mm -hmm. And he at the same time says, we can't use near-death experiences to, as it were, tear us for furniture of the afterlife. And you're pretty much saying the same thing about religious experiences. We can't use these to tear us for nature of God, per se. Right, sure. Mm -hmm. Except insofar as the, the noetic qualities uh, yeah. are demonstrating God's love, Mm -hmm. and God's all-pervasive nature, but we can't, you know. Yeah. Some, to me, doctrinal means creeds mm -hmm. and, you know, specific doctrines. Yeah. You know, like uh, the, the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, or, you know, yeah. the dead body of Jesus is a good object of worship, or, you know, um, I don't know, name some doctrines. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at the seminary. I can't yeah, the yeah you can't prove the nature of a Eucharist from religious yeah, experience. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so I'm guessing then what you'd say is that religious experience falls under what we call general revelation, but you don't get special revelation from general revelation. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah you can use history to study and find that, yes, Jesus did indeed die on the cross, but studying history alone won't tell you Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Well, and, you know, my because your audience is primarily Christian, we're talking about it as an apologetics work. Mm -hmm. But my book, The Trace of God, is not just an apologetics work. I mean, mm -hmm. you, can read it, you can read it as a uh, mm -hmm. compendium of certain kind of psychological studies. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, it's uh, it, it should be of interest to a larger audience than yeah. just an apologetics-oriented audience. Yeah. So how, how should this affect our lives? I mean, should we be seeking religious experiences, or should we be just... Well, I wouldn't say seek the experience. This is... Yeah. I was, uh, you know, I was a charismatic when I first got saved, and they used to have a slogan in the charismatics that said, seek the giver and not the gift. Right. So that's that's the way I look at it. You've got to uh, seek God, and in seeking God, you will have the experiences. Yeah. And, and you might even wind up with a gift or two if you're really open to it. And so what it is for you, what you're saying, then, is that we should live our lives seeking, pretty much, if we're serving Christ, seeking to farm the best we can, keep doing that. If we have religious experience sometime, great. If not, where well, God's not granting us one for some reason, but there's definitely no way we can force a religious experience on ourselves. No, you can't. Um, you can't. Well, for one thing, you could. There are triggers. You can trigger it, but you can't control what you're going to get. You mm -hmm. can, um, you know, you can pray and meditate. And you can um, go to church services, listen to classical music. Mozart is a good trigger, mm -hmm. um, you know. But you're not gonna, you can't go. Oh, I need some Holy Spirit. I'll eat some lima beans, and that will trigger the Holy Spirit. No, you can't do that. But mm -hmm. um, you know, in praying and seeking God and meditating on the Word, you can, uh, you will. In my opinion, you will have some form of experience. Another thing that you should do is not expect. Don't say, I'm going to get this or that, you know. Just mm -hmm. be open to what God does in your life. Mm -hmm. no, in fact, we... There is a book that Evelyn Underhill wrote. Underhill was in the early part of the 20th century, and she was an Anglican, I think. And she wrote uh, a lot of books on mysticism. And she was like, she was a noted authority on the subject in that, in that era. Um, one book that she wrote called The Life of the Spirit and the Life for Today. And there's, a, there's, God, there's an even better book. It's like a manual, uh, you know, where she takes you through various uh, exercises. So that, that's something you can do is to get, a, get devotionalistic uh, literature and see, uh, you know, some of the things that mystics did to trigger it. But I wouldn't suggest running around Mm -hmm. uh, reading a bunch of books and trying to make something happen because right. that smacks of expectation. Mm -hmm. You know, just just seek to cultivate an inner life and be open to God. Mm -hmm. And by inner life, of course, I mean prayer and meditation. You know, I'm thinking about meditation on the Word. No, I don't mean transcendental meditation. Yeah. I mean Christian meditation. Yeah, I'm thinking that Paul warns us that some of us could be of a mindset that we'd have an experience and we'd go and be puffed up about what we'd seen and heard. And he, he encountered people who were very much of that mindset. That's probably why he'd say, you know, you can't force this kind of thing here because if you do, it, it's a form of pride. Right, sure. Yeah. And now when we talk about this being general revelation, so much I think you agreed with, 
would this also be a way that God is giving a witness to himself to people out there that they can seek him while he can be found, as Paul would say. That, that's why religious experience can happen in so many cultures. Right, yes. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And, well, like, you know, Paul says, if uh, in Romans, you know, in, well, okay, start with Acts, Acts 17, he tells yeah. the Greeks, um, mm -hmm. you already know God, you just don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, you got this altar to the unknown God, now I'm going to tell you who the unknown God is. Mm -hmm. So he didn't, see, he didn't say, oh, you're a bunch of heathens and you're going to hell, you know. Yeah. And in Romans 2, he says, uh, you know, it, anyone who's seeking the good will get salvation. He said the, the moral law is written on the heart. If we live up to the moral law, uh, our hearts may excuse us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in other words, like C.S. Lewis talks about, you're, you're following Christ de facto, even though you don't know that you are. If, you, if you're seeking the good and you live up to it and you're, you're true in it. So, you know, why would God not be, you know, if God is drawing people to Christ, he's going to uh, draw them in such a way as to uh, let them have the trace of God. They're going to they're gonna feel uh, the presence of God and so forth. But, but the end result is to draw them to Christ. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about... Just recently, I had someone who I've been kind of helping out with some questions, asked me a question about, what about those people who've never heard? And I said, you know, we really don't have a plain, clear, cut-out answer from the Bible, but my answer is always that God would judge people by the light he gives and how they respond to it. And yeah, I agree end, with that. Yeah. I don't think that, I think it's a big, you know, I think Cyprian was wrong. Cyprian the third century said there is no salvation outside the church. Why did it take them to the third century to decide that? Mm -hmm. I think the reason that they went three centuries before they concluded that is because that's not what the early church taught. Mm -hmm. That's why Paul writes like he did about uh, the Greeks. He says, you know, in former times God winked at idolatry. He did? Where does he wink? Where in the Old Testament does God ever wink at idolatry? How could Paul even say such a thing? Well, it's because they didn't really look at it the way we think they did. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, that's why modern Jews don't say, if you're not a Jew, you're going to hell. They don't believe that, mm -hmm. because they didn't believe it back then. They didn't say all the Gentiles are going to hell. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, From what we know Jesus about is salvation, and you're not going to get saved through any other name, but if you don't if you don't have the opportunity to understand who Jesus is and to join the church, God is not going to say, "Oh, sorry, you just born in the wrong place, the wrong time. You're bad luck. You have to go to hell now." Yeah. You know, I don't, I just don't believe that's going to happen. Now, from what we know about the Jews, they weren't very much into evangelism. Right. Sure. Yeah. And what. I end up with my answer is that God's going to treat everyone fairly. You might not know how, but he's going, it's going to be fair, and no one on the last day will be able to really say it wasn't fair. Everyone will know right. they're getting what they deserve. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. Now, when 
comes forever to be kinds of experiences. Are, are there any concerns that we should have though with this kind of thing? Is there anything we should be on guard for? Is there anything we should be watching when someone comes to us and tells us about a religious experience? Well, uh, just not to be not to be hung up on having the experience. Mm-hmm. To seek to know God, not not to have this or that experience, and uh, you know to to uh, be to, you know be be where I would be wary of any group that claimed to uh, you know to dispense a certain kind of experience. Mm-hmm. With because this? I don't think, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, um, that sounds like I'm indicting the charismatic movement, but I'm really not. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still have sympathy for the charismatics, but, um, you know, I just don't think that, I mean, I, God is going to give us everything good that we're open to receiving, mm-hmm. but you can't demand it, you can't force it, you can't control it. Yeah. It, it seems that a lot of times we treat God as if he's a genie that right. we are meant to give us. And I'm thinking specifically of people on TBN, for instance, who go a, a big deal about all these experiences and then teach this so-called gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity as the sign that God is working in you when... I look at the New Testament and I see the living conditions of Paul and the apostles and Jesus and think, well, I guess God must not have been working too well with them yeah. then. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not uh, not into that prosperity thing. No. The, and, yeah, my, uh, my memories of the charismatic movement are nostalgic. You mm. know, I, I, I came into it in 79, so mm. I think about the way it was then, you know. And I, I should be clear, I'm not trying to jump on the charismatics either. There are a number of great charismatic biblical scholars and such out there, and I think a large number of them would just as well condemn the health and wealth, name it, claim it kind of movement yeah, going sure. on out there. And what you've said also about these experiences, and you used Acts 17 indicates that you can use this kind of argument and still be very aware within the bounds of evangelical orthodoxy, can't you? Yeah, I think so, sure. Mm-hmm. Lots uh, of evangelical uh, people I would term orthodox evangelicals had big experiences. Mm-hmm. William Booth. And, you know, who's, who's going to say that John Wesley wasn't an orthodox evangelical? Yeah, yeah. William Booth. Maybe not everyone in this Methodist denomination remains so, but uh, there's a there's an evangelical strain in the Methodist still even today. So yeah. you, you're talking about a uh, John Wesley when he said his heart was strangely warmed by what happened. Yeah, there's a, what is commonly referred to as the Alders Gate experience, where he had something that sounds suspiciously like baptism of the Holy Spirit or something, or a born-again experience or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Wesley had it stacked up a little differently than the charismatics. He, that he didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't have born-again and baptism of the Holy Spirit. He had sort of like this extra um, second work of grace or something like that. But uh, he was basically 
he basically believed in the gifts. Mm-hmm. And we're also not talking, in fact, also about, about a situation such as religious hysteria or anything like that, such as, say, the Salem witch trials and like that. Cause people may have these experiences they don't go insane or anything of that sort there. Right, fact, right. From what I gather from what you said, they usually, in fact, if they're not well-educated already, they become... Less, the, you're less likely to be mentally ill as, as a result of these experiences. People who have these experiences are less likely to uh, be mentally ill or they become mentally ill than people who don't have them. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really, it really puts you together mentally. In fact, there's uh, there are some studies that show um, uh, uh, mental health workers and, and psychiatrists who are working in with with mental patients encourage them to to uh, be open to mystical experience because they find that it's that it's better therapeutically. Mm -hmm. It actually helps them to get well. And so, uh, and like half like half of the um, Practitioners who who agree with that have actually had those experiences themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's not you know that the the, uh, the modern state in psychology of religion is far different than it was in the days of Freud when it was dogmatically assumed that religion was a pathological state. Mm -hmm. And if you're emotional about religion, then you're really a fruitcake. But uh, it's very much different today. Where, where a whole school of psychologists believe that it's good and healthy and, and, and actually um, normative for humans to have emotional religious experiences. And how do you think those of us who consider ourselves high Christian intellectuals who tend to be very weary of emotional experiences, how should we start viewing our own emotional experiences and the purpose of emotions in our lives? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. One thing that I found when I got saved is that I was uh, very emotionally, uh, I, I guess you could say, bound up. I was afraid to express my emotions. I mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, I, I would see myself, I would think to myself, you know, I'm a Vulcan. I don't have emotions. I don't need to feel emotional, uh, which is a ridiculous, ridiculous thing to think. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think that that there. I mean, there. Are, I'm not a psychiatrist, and I don't know of any self-help books or anything like that. But I think that that might not be a bad place to start. Mm -hmm. Just read some kind of self-help book on on the mind or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't have any plan for that, but I do think that, um, you know, it wouldn't hurt to start thinking about an, what is emotional uh, maturity. Mm -hmm. That's that's what Maslow started studying, was uh, what, what are the factors that make for emotional health. Mm -hmm. all, all of psychiatry had been shaped around learning what made for emotional illness. And so he wanted to to find what made for emotional health. And uh, religious experience is one of the things he discovered mm -hmm. that does it. So, well, you there's, know. There's so well, much... By the Trace of God, my book, The Trace of God, 
that will help. That's the that's the starting place. Read that book. Well, there's so much more we could discuss, but our time is coming to an end, unfortunately. So, um, where the Trace of God that is available on Amazon for twenty three seventy right now. It's in paperback. It doesn't seem to be out on Kindle yet, as far as I know, but it's available on Amazon but it now. Will be. It will be? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just have to keep an eye out for that. Um, if people have found this interesting, they, they might not have a book yet, but they, they like what they've heard from you, they want to hear more. Do you have a website or a blog site or anything more that people can go to to get more information? Yes, I have a blog. It's called Metacross Blog. Mm -hmm. It's on Blogger. I have a, the article up there today is announcing my book. Mm -hmm. So the link to Amazon will be there, and it tells a little bit about it and stuff. Um, and then I have another website called The Religious A Priori, mm -hmm. and that has uh, a whole section on uh, this topic. So you can see several different articles and things on it. Well, when and we get we get everything set up for this interview after I'm done using all the recording equipment and such, then I'll make sure to get back to you as well, so you can put a link up to Great. there. Now, Great. And I, I, I have more books waiting in the wings, so... Well... <laughs> you might want to think about that. Well, you've got a little... Uh, we've got about three minutes left. Is there any final message you'd like to leave with the audience? Well, the, the final message, number one, buy my book, The Trace of God, and number two, seek God. God mm. is real. God is love, and that's the whole point of everything. Mm -hmm. well, that's what I would say. Well, and I, my book ends. Mm -hmm. Put down the book and put it down. Go away and pray. Mm -hmm. Go pray. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's certainly been an interesting time. you got other books coming out, so hopefully we'll see you back here again. We can discuss those other books. Great. I would like that. Well, well thanks a lot, Nick. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. And I'd like everyone to know that you've been listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters. My guest has been Joseph Hyman. Next week, we're going to have Abdu Murray coming on, talking about his book, The Grand Central Question. For now, I'm Nick Peters, signing off. Until next week.